Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm the Grumpy Surfer and your host Ads Lyson. On the podcast this week I have a guy that started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in 1986. So seven years before the UFC even made Jiu Jitsu popular in Western culture. He trained with the likes of the Graces and the Machados and then became one of the original Dirty Dozen, of which he named, and got his black belt from the Machado brothers in 1997. But prior to starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in 1986, he had a breadth of martial art experience, whether it was wrestling or taekwondo. So please enjoy one of the most interesting conversations about Jiu-Jitsu I've ever had, and a super nice guy, John Will. John Will, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ed. Nice to be here. Three questions. How are you? Where are you? And are you training today? I'm awesome. And I'm in Geelong, which is a regional town in Victoria, Australia. And yes, I'm training today because I'm not insane. That is the correct answer. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's quite, a, quite interesting, really. And I think it's a bit of a coincidence because um, when I left the military last year, um, I set up my own business, a uh, therapy business, and um, uh, doing the bowing technique. And the, the bowing technique originally, uh, I don't know whether you know or you probably do, is uh, it actually originated in Geelong in, uh, in Australia, which I thought was quite random when I was kind of looking you up a little bit. That's pretty, that is pretty random. Yeah, wow, it is. Can I ask you a question before we get going? Yeah, sure. Which, where, did, where, are you, where did you serve? In the military, which... I was in the Royal Marines Commandos. Okay, got it. Because I've done a bit of work with the Marine Corps in America and like, and other places. So, right. Okay, I'm with you now. Sykes Fairburn, rock on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, kind of, it was kind of one of the things that I was going to talk to you about as well um, a, a little bit later on, was sort of like the combatives and and uh, and working with the police and, and that side of things. Because as we're going to be talking about jiu-jitsu, I hope... <laughs> You know, it, it it ties in quite nicely. I mean, let's a little bit of background history and the reason why um, you know, I I guess people have a have an interest in you is really is that you were one of the original dirty dozen, so one of the first twelve non-Brazilian black belts to receive that black belt, and you got it from Hegan Machado, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, I mean, yes, Hegan's the one that tied the belt around my waist, okay. and it was his own belt, which was even more special. Um, but all of the Machados were there, except for Carlos, who was in Texas at the time. But the other three were there, so four of the Machado brothers. I was lucky in that respect. Well, you know, it was early, right, before they all went their separate ways, and you know, when, when I say separate ways, I mean, geographically speaking, they all went and did their own thing, right? But in those days, they were all teaching in the one spot, with the exception of Carlos, who was in Texas. So, yeah, they were all there and uh, got my black belt in the early part of 1997. So I've been in and out of the Dirty Dozen like a few times because someone will make a claim that they got their black belt before me. Now I'm out. And then someone calls bullshit that I'm back in, you know, and it was kind of like that a little bit, whatever. I mean, it's, a, but it's become a bit of a thing, you know, um, I coined the phrase. I was the first one to coin the phrase dirty dozen as a 
just a tongue-in-cheek, off-the-cuff thing in an interview or I forget, in an article or something way back. I just had to come up with a name on the spot, so I just made that name. But it's it's become a bit of – it's got a bit of traction, so it's kind of funny. It's quite strange, isn't it, because – if you kind of look back into the history and, you know, you can go on Wikipedia or, you know, other, other magazine articles that kind of quote these things like the dirty dozen as, as kind of the collective group, it all makes it sound out that everybody that was a non-Brazilian that got their black belt back in sort of like the nineties, you all trained together, which isn't necessarily the case. It's just over the years, everyone's just collected all this information and put it together in one thing and gone, oh, look, this is what happened. Because, you know, a lot of you guys were all training with lots of different of the Brazilians that came into America at the time. And it just so happened to turn into this, you know, cliche thing with all these videos that have come out now to say, you know, these are the OGs, basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was... The Machados, it was a little, there were, there were quite a few of us in with the Machados, all training together. But so there was Bob Bass, who was the first black belt. Um, and then there's me, Dave Meyer, Chris Howder. Um, who, who, who else am I? See, I hate to miss out. <laughs> so there's at least four, right? There might be. So, so four or five of the, of the Dirty Dozen all came from the one mat. And then the rest are all spread out all over the place. Have so you, I think we... Is, is it like a... Is there like a yearly seminar where the dirt doesn't get together and they sort of like spin a few stories and have a few beers? Or is it just a case of like, oh, no, you know, we're, it, we're part of this name? <laughs> yeah, it's the latter. Um, but, but it would be a good idea. And, you know, we've made noises about doing it, but half of them we couldn't track down. I don't think... Uh, there's probably three or there's probably half of them that don't even train anymore. I would imagine. Right. Like I didn't know Craig Cookook, for example. And I mean, what can I say? I mean, back in those days, Craig Cookook was one, I think he got his black belt from Henzo, but it was kind of, look, there were, there were, I'm not saying, I'm not making any comment other than there were some people who got a black belt because it was just, I like okay, outside of the dirty dozen, let me say that, and then you can make any infer inference you you wish to make. But outside of the there were people back in the very early days. I know a couple that got a black belt. They were not a black belt. They just got a black belt because they'd done a whole bunch of judo when they were young, and then then and they were on the mat, and they were getting older. So someone said, "Look, well done. Here's a here's a what do you call it? What would you call it?" an honorary black belt, you know, good job, well done, but no one took it seriously and because they weren't on the mat. And There's people around like that. I'm not taking away from anyone. It was, you know, it's fair enough. But um, so there's there was some of that going on back in those days. So I, when I think of the people who were the OGs, I think of the ones that were on the mat actually training and none of those particular kinds of people. But... Yeah, um, yeah. We should get together. I mean, I don't know how many whether we could round them all up, but it would be a fun thing, right? <laughs> you know, even if we get together and do a seminar and raise some money for charity. I mean, I'm more, I'd, I'd be more into that, right? You know, do something so the money goes somewhere, not to them. Probably, probably most of them are desperate and financially living in their mum's basement or something. I don't know. Um, 
it's good to see that uh even the politics of uh of jiu-jitsu it was is kind of still fluttering around in the in the early days as it as it kind of is now between academies and clubs and stuff yeah um when i started jiu-jitsu i started in uh gracie baja you know which is now a franchise um back in those days it wasn't it was one mat in baja um and on that mat were high and gracie henzo gracie Hegan Machado, Hodger Machado, Johnny Machado, Carlos Machado, John Jacques Machado, uh, Helion Gracie, uh, all on the same mat. Like they were all on the one mat. They were just purple belts and brown belts. I think Penzo was a purple belt. So, you know, we're all in the one room. Um, but, you know, nowadays it's like everywhere and it's a franchise and it's kind of weird to me, you know, but in those early days it was, it wasn't political. As far as I was aware, anyway, it was quite good. And one, we're all in the same room. And 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 two, I remember being in Rio and Hegan saying, let's go over to Carlson's gym. We'll say hello to my uncle Carlson. You know, we go over there and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so it was all, everyone was very friendly and very cool. And there wasn't, I think the, the federation has made it grow through competition. And then it's been more political because of the, competition scene but back then it was much more much more of the kind of brotherhood that people would like it to be you know back in those early grassroots kind of days it was pretty cool and no one knew about it outside of brazil so how do you feel that's kind of changed over the years because there's um i mean it depends how hard you look into it i i've been i've been quite lucky in the fact that because i was in the military I've I bounced around a lots of different clubs. So I've you know when I got drafted somewhere, I'd train there. I'd train at a club for maybe two three years, uh, and then I move off somewhere else. And I, you know, you read these kind of they're almost like horror stories, really. That could could you could say have have a negative light, where some coaches won't let their black belts, for instance, go and train anywhere else or they have a, um, a negative sort of outlook on their students training at other clubs where I think that's, that should be quite a normal thing because if you go and if you stay stagnant and you have training partners that you're always trained with, then you're learning their game and you're not really developing your kind of the way that you train with, with lots and lots of different people. And, and I always, I always find that quite strange. And over the last sort of like five years, I've, especially where I live, because I live in the southwest of England, which is, you know, there's there's a jujitsu, um, there's a jujitsu community, but not like a big city where you've got lots of different clubs, all sort of like in a five mile or a five kilometer radius, and they've got kind of like this almost animosity to a certain extent. And you know, I, I've just set my own. Um, club up which is literally today is a year it's been open and I'm my mindset is like I, I just I just want to train I, I don't care about all that I set something up so I can train and I enjoy coaching uh, you know with, with my students and, and I've said to them like if they want to go and train other places you know feel free to do that you know that's the your development skill do you see much of that or or not yeah I think that what changed it like it used to be more of a like hobbyist you know like like you'd surf at your break you got your home break you know where it is but you know you'd very you'd be super keen to surf another break on your holiday or you know right you'd be right um 
but then I think what changed it is two things. Um, is one is the um, competition. So competition team, scene, sorry, competition scene. You know, now it's like we're gonna, you know, you're we're gonna be competing against you guys. So um that's going to be a problem down the track. So we don't want to get that friendly. We're competing against each other. That changed. It wasn't when I started jujitsu ads, there was a competition scene, but it wasn't like now. Now there's a tournament every weekend if you want to go and find it. So it was a very grassrootsy kind of idea, but the competition scene has grown tremendously over the last couple of decades. And so that I think that's created a bit of the what do you call it? You know, that separated kind of idea. And then the other aspect is business. It's now a business. I mean, it didn't used to be a business. <laughs> you know, it was it was just a hobby, right? And but now people can make a living. And so if you're making a living and there's another guy in town who's making his living, there's market share. And if there's only 50,000 people in your town, there's limited market share. And now if there's two schools, you're dividing that market share. Now you're getting half the income. If there's free, now you're getting a third of the income. So why would you want to socialize? So now, now please don't misunderstand. I'm okay with it, but I had the luxury of being okay with it because I'm financially retired. I'm cool. I don't need money anymore. So that allows me to get up on my high horse and say, of course, bro, I don't care. But there, you know, when I was paying my house off and go, no, I, <laughs> I need those clients, right? I'll teach any idiot, <laughs> but now I can go, no, you're not my brand of idiot. You can go somewhere else. Um, so I think I'm not getting up on my high horse, but I think that um, when you're financially secure, you know, you're much more open and cool about it. But when you're desperate for money and that's your only way to make an income, then yeah, you're reluctant to have your students go somewhere else possibly because you're scared or have some fear that they might like the other instructor a little better than you and therefore join up and quit your school. Now, I have a particular view on that. If that's the case, they need to be there. Because as you and I probably both would very much agree on, people need to be, we will attract the people that are like-minded. Right. And, and if the other school is not exactly, it would be more of a problem if the other instructor over there was very similar to you. That would be more of a problem. But they're all, no, they're different. They might be more hip, more young, more crazy, out partying. You know, so people will need to go, they will eventually end up where they need to be. So um, I'm okay with it. But yes, uh, yeah, I think the sport changed it and the fact that it, you can make a business out of it, those two things really made it a, a little bit less free, let's say. Hmm. I think when you look at it like that, you definitely, they're, they're kind of like the, the underwritten things, right? They're things that people don't talk about. I mean, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a few things in jiu-jitsu that, that people don't talk about openly because, you know, it, it's orientated around the head coach. One of them's gradings. You know, how do you get oh. your how do you get your next belt you know it's right. it's almost <clears> kind <throat> of it's almost kind of awkward isn't it you know uh, that sort of conversation and the second one is the business side of jiu-jitsu as well you know it, it's um it, it's nice i enjoy like like for instance for me as as a as an as a you could say a new coach or a new business owner because that's mm -hmm. what i am i'm i'm i i, I speak freely about it 
I have no background in in running businesses. I've literally been doing it for the last eighteen months. You know, running my therapy business and then opening up this um, this jujitsu school. But I've I I don't have a background in business, but from the the jobs that I had when I was in the military when I left has kind of given me this um, given this mindset and this 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 logical path to go along. Thing, you know, all the stuff that's kind of boring, you know, insurances, um, you know, you you your stores, all the all the background stuff that you have to think about to to run a place as well as how do you get your clients in? Where did you, how do you advertise? Um, you know, are, are you, are you, have you got a, um, have you got an advertisement campaign to, to bring new students in? How are you when you coach? You know, word of mouth is a massive thing. Advertising these days, you know, it's all over social media. People are flicking through things like this and they might see something, but as, if your name's out there and they see it enough times, they remember it, you know, mm. so all the, all, all these things are in the background. And I think, like you say, it's the the business side of jujitsu is almost kind of the the, the hidden dirty thing, uh, uh, along with you know asking about gradings and stuff. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I I'm one for like, um, let's say, being um, fiscally uh, or financially literate you know, however people want to interpret that. I think it's incumbent upon us to get across that. Now, not for the idea of, I just want to make money for the making money's sake. There's better ways to do that. Um, I, but I think that here's what I've learned by getting my shit together when it comes to finances and money is once you do that well and you don't need money anymore. Then you're teaching from the pure place. Because if I teach a seminar like I did last weekend, I'm not doing it for money because I've got that shit sorted. So that means if I'm there, I'm there for the perfect reason because I want to be there, not because I have to be there. And, and that alone is a reason to get your shit together financially. Do you understand what I mean? Um, Whereas if you have to be there because you need the money, because you haven't been financially literate, you haven't educated yourself on how to make money, how to invest it, you haven't done any of that, and therefore you find yourself at 50 years of age with no savings, you don't own your house, none of that stuff, then you're going to be teaching, you're going to be doing anything, you're going to be teaching anyone who can pay you. That's not ideal for them or you. Well, it comes from a wrong. So, it, it comes from a difficult place, then, doesn't it? And yeah, and the and the and you know, I, I guess what we were kind of alluding to earlier, with with your mindset, uh, as well as the, I mean, I, I guess the reason why you've done so well is yeah, okay, you're one of these guys that you started jujitsu a long, long time ago, but you've been doing it now for what nearly 30, 40 years. Now, somebody doesn't do that unless they're one, they're passionate about it, and two, that they they enjoy doing it and they enjoy teaching. Now, if you go into if you if you do something again, you know, martial arts isn't exactly the most lucrative thing on the planet to to go into business with, let alone, you know, get to the standard 
where you can say, yeah, I'm an instructor and I'm a coach, especially in jujitsu, because it takes a long time to get to that, you know, mm. say brown belt, black belt level where you can start getting to the coaching side of things. Then if you're doing just, just to earn a, you know, a few quid here and there, then I guess you're in it for the wrong reason. Yeah. And I don't, and I think you almost touched on this point ads. I don't think it's sustainable. To, like you can do anything for the wrong reason for a while, <laughs> but you can't do anything for the wrong reason for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. No, nah, like you, you've had to have transitioned into the right reason or you're gone. Like anyone can fake it for a bit, but it's not sustainable. Um, you have to find ways to keep, you know, extracting joy from what you do as you go along so that you can do it weirdly, paradoxically perhaps, so that you can do it for long enough to eventually make money. Like, <laughs> so, right? If you go in to go into martial arts, particularly BJJ, to make money, it almost it's almost guaranteed to fail. Um, you have to go into it because it provides you with enough challenge, problem solving, complexity to keep you there, so that you can do it for long enough to save money for thirty years and invest it and then make you a couple of million dollars. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's, um, so it's, yeah, you've got to take the right approach. So it's sustainable. It's almost like anything, like everything. I used to say, everything's a 10 year plan. Everything's a 10 year plan, whether it's a BJJ black belt, home ownership, making a million dollars, speaking another language, it's a fucking 10 year plan. And um, it's probably more like a 20 year plan. <laughs> it's like, so, so if you're going into something, oh, I can do this for a bit and it's three years. No, nah, nah. I don't see those people lasting long enough to do well. I mean, you say that, you know, the, the, the 10 year plan side of things. I've, I only ever really heard that in the, in the military, you know, you've got your, your one-year plan, your five-year plan, your three-year <laughs> plan, your 10-year plan, you know, where do you see yourself in 20 years and, and all that mm. sort of thing. And it's, um, it's quite interesting, quite interesting you say that because I could have quite easily um, just gone, you know, feet both straight into this um, as a, a, as a business side of things, I could have gone straight in, bought a whole bunch of matting um, spent a lot of money like renting somewhere, leasing contracts, all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I got, I, I've got a pension now. So, you know, it's not the best pension in the world. Um, let's just say that, but it, but it's enough to kind of make me comfortable. And, and, you know, I'm basically, I'm not hanging out for money through teaching jujitsu and, and doing therapy. You know, I've got quite a bit of free time and, and I'm a, and I, and I was never going to get into this. Um, and I didn't want to get into something where I was working a nine to five job, you know, waiting for the weekend and kind of my, my life getting wasted away. I wanted to be able to enjoy what I was doing. I could go surfing, I could train as much as I, as I could, but then with my pension and, you know, making a bit of money in the background, just live comfortably. And, but my, my kind of point is that I could have just jumped feet first into it with a bit of the gratuity money that I got as a, as a payout and all that got fluttered away and I, and, and just gone straight into something, but then I haven't got any clients, you know, your students are clients, they're paying customers. And there's a guy that I know that um, did this for five years. He, he went and, he 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 built his his school up, but the 
but the price of how much it was costing him his overheads to the the stage of the 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 membership fees and the money that was coming in he basically didn't make any money for five years and yet to stop it in the end you know and that's a bad situation yeah um there's a lot of ways to i mean it's weird but it's there's a lot of ways to make a living let's say um out of jujitsu or martial arts but jujitsu and, and, and I mean, you, you can have a giant school and 500 students. I know people that have got that. Um, you can have a small school. You can be a Chris Howder and have it in your garage. Zero overhead. Um, you know, um, I would always, if someone asked my advice on it, not that you are, but, but if someone, I would always err on the side of sustainability, like, how do, how do you need to set yourself up given your circumstances and where you are and where you are in life and how old you are and all of that? How do you set yourself up so that you can just keep doing that for as long as you can? Now, if that means you're in a garage with no overhead and you've only got 25 students, you will end up doing better than someone with a big school and 150 students in the long run. So there is no right way. Um, it's just all of that. And, and, the, and the other thing is, it's going to sound a bit philosophical, a bit Buckminster Fuller-ish, but the money should come as a consequence of what you're doing, but not the reason for doing it. Um, right? It's, it's, a, it's a consequence in the same way that cross-pollination in flowers is a consequence of the bee going flower to flower collecting pollen. It's not the reason the bee does that. The bee is not trying to cross-pollinate flowers. It's just collecting pollen. I'm not trying to make money. I'm doing jujitsu really well. Now, as a, as a consequence of that, I've gotten all the money I'll ever need. Do you understand? There's a difference, right? I'm sure you do. But I, I've seen people going in there and they're all about making the money. And it's just like, Wow, you know, no, you should be in it for other reasons. And if you do whatever the fuck it is, like if it's folding airplanes, doing origami and making paper planes, if that's your thing and you are really excellent at it and you're one of the best ones, money will come. You'll find a way. But it it, it can't be the reason because I don't think it's sustainable. So. You and my dad would get um, amazing. You've got the, you uh we're both old. <laughs> I, I I did not say that. That came from you, not me. <laughs> yeah, it's a very unique thing what you've just said there, because not a lot of people have that um, have that insight or the um, or kind of like I, I guess I guess it comes with experience, you know, trial and error and failure and getting back up and 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 resetting those goals again. But I think you know. So, People don't have real realistic expectations as well. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you can use this analogy as, you know, your new, your new white belt that, that, that joins, joins your club or your academy or surfing, for instance, um, where they, they like the idea of it. They want to be good at it, but they want to be good at it real quick. They don't want to do sort of like the hard yards, you know, jujitsu, you know, full well, it takes a long time to become even remotely um, semi good at it. 
you can define that in whatever way you, you you can you can think same as surfing as well you it's a skill you can't just expect to become a professional in you know in a, in a day's tuition you have to spend the hours on the mat in the sea you know the the, the classic cliche of your ten thousand hours to become even remotely yeah. remotely good at something and it takes a long time to do it and i guess in a way that's if you stick at it it gives you that gives that that personal sort of like satisfaction knowing that you've got to a point where you go do you know what i actually work really hard for this and mm -hmm. And all that experience that comes from behind it, you know, your yeah. your your coach as well, kind of puts their philo philo uh, philosophical outlooks onto things, and almost becomes like the guru. And then that's uh, that's kind of comes back to the idea that if you're if you're a really good coach and you're a really good instructor, you know, you're almost passing your your life's lessons onto other people as well, as well as teaching them something really cool. I think very few people are going to go into choose jujitsu as a martial art if their goal is to get a black belt. There's easier ways. Buy one. Do Taekwondo. Like, like the, so, so that's not your motivation. You get the black belt as a consequence of just doing the work. And you get money, in my view, as a consequence of doing the work for long enough and investing the right way. So, but it's not the reason. Like a black belt's not the reason. So for me, it's all the same. Um, and in jujitsu, like to, to extend the analogy, you know, you wouldn't have just a guard game, right? What would you say to me if I just had a guard game? You know, you go, you need to learn to pass. You need to learn to finish. You've got to have a takedown game. You've got to have a um, some self-defense applications. You know, you've got to be able to someone's whacking you on the head a whole bunch of times, you've got to be able to cover up. So you would tell me that you can't just have a guard game. And then when it comes to income, you can't just have one income stream. You're already doing jujitsu. You've got your pension and you've got your bowing. So you've already got at least three that I know about. And it's those three together that make you more complete. And if you take away one, take away one, then you're like everyone else, right? So yeah, I don't, I don't see a distinction between jiu-jitsu and life like every aspect of my life and every aspect of jiu-jitsu is all the same fucking thing it's all congruent everywhere for the same reasons what drove you to to doing martial arts in in the first place uh because you know you um you were quite competent in, in a few other uh, different arts before you even before you even took up jiu-jitsu so you know what what drove you to it um, and what drew you to jiu-jitsu after becoming quite competent in those different martial arts i started doing martial arts probably for the same reason that a lot of people have studied in that you know i got into a few my I, my father was a policeman um and then he changed jobs locations a bit like an army kid you know, I guess you, so you moved around. So you're always the new kid in the school, halfway through the school term. And so the pecking order of who's for whose friend, whatever has already been established and you're the new kid in there. So you're getting into, you're getting bullied or getting into some fights and stuff. And I was fearful as a child because of some of those. I remember a couple of people in different places, like they'd be, they'd be every day in my face bullying. And, and I, I just went, I just, no, I just need to build my confidence. Um, so I started with wrestling and then, um, wrestling worked because, you know, I, 
take them down and mount on top and just go to town ground and pound and that worked every fucking time like right um and then i took up taekwondo and every fight i got into and after that i'd still go take them down mount and ground and pound and then so i went well that's this is not working i got my taekwondo black belt and that that but i wasn't using it in any of the fights and so then i went to southeast asia and trained in indonesia thailand india japan china and trained around for 10 years trying to you know find what i what i was looking for being a dojo rat, I had no money, but then I made a magazine called Blitz, which is an Australian martial arts magazine. I just started it in my own house with a Commodore 64 computer. It worked out. It was only four times a year, seasonal publication, but it made me enough pocket money. It didn't make me rich, but it made me, you know, it made me my enough, enough. it made me the same as wages, you know, working in a hardware store or something, you know, like, so, or Tesco, you know, that, that kind of money. But it was, but, but at the same time, I had a, a free freedom of time. So, and that was allowed me to travel around. Now, in the early part of that magazine, there was a guy came from Brazil to Australia and he put out a challenge for money for anyone who wanted to fight. This is in Balatudo. Like nowadays, it go, people go, oh, yeah, I get it. But not in 18, not in 1986. In 1986, that was a weird thing to do like challenge the martial art community to a fight for money. Like that was radical back then. So I wrote this one page article about it. No one took up the challenge. So I became interested. What the hell? Who is this guy? What's going on? So with a little bit of detective work, I heard he was a jujitsu guy. I didn't even know what that was. I thought jujitsu was, you know, Japanese jujitsu. So I ended up going over to Los Angeles, rocked up to Hori and Gracie's garage, did my first five lessons after I did an interview with him. He said, do you want to do some lessons? I said, sure. I paid through the nose for those lessons. Like it cost me all my money for five lessons. Then I had to go home to Australia because I was broke. But I learned enough in those five lessons that when I came home, I was trying to fight every judo black belt, karate black belt, taekwondo black belt that I could find. I'd come in and take them down with my wrestling. And then I jujitsu them with, my arm bar and my back choke and my Americana, you know, very basic stuff. And um, I thought, shit, this is working. Like I should do 10 lessons <laughs> instead of five. So I saved up six months later or something. I went back to America, back to Horian's garage with the intention of not training there because I couldn't afford it, of getting an address in Brazil where I was pretty confident it would be free. That's not true, but I thought <laughs> that surely it's got to be the same as India and Thailand and everywhere else, where if you just turn up, they're going to let you trade. So I went to Orient's and Hegan Machado was teaching there at the age of 18. And he said to me, don't train here, you idiot. <laughs> Go to Brazil. And I said, funny you should say that. This is with like no English. And uh, he said, I'm going down there next week. Come with me. And we've just been great friends ever since. So that's how it started for me. And I went to Brazil, Baja Gracie. And it was only five or six years later, I realized, holy shit, where I was and who I was training with. <laughs> I just, pure luck, right? And then um, then the UFC happened in 1992. And then, or I think, well, 93, one of the two. And then, uh, you know, then the world started finding out about it. But I was a purple belt when the first UFC happened. Yeah, it, it must be. It must be quite 
as you look back at it now and and you look back in time and you see kind of like the um because jujitsu has got so so popular now you know it's one of the fastest i guess one of the fastest growing sports in the world because of you know the ufc and the one championship and bellator and you know and all, and all these all, all these things that are becoming mainstream media regardless of what sort of element of of, of martial arts they're using mm. And you were just doing it because you'd started a magazine up, you were interested in martial arts, and it was just kind of, I guess you could call it fate. You're in the right place at the right time. And and right. now, you know, 30, 40, 40 years later, you kind of look back on it and go, it's quite funny. I was just I was just, I just rocked up and I was just training with some guys and they just appear to just so happen to be the guys. And 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 now, you know, them are mates and I am where I am, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's quite funny. I'll tell you a funny story. You'd appreciate this. I was sitting in Baja Gracie one day on the side of the mat. Henzo was sitting next to me. For those who don't know, Henzo Gracie, you know, everyone, most people know who that is. He was sitting next to me. And why I say that is because Henzo was one of the very few people in that mat that could speak English. He, he could speak English. Everyone else couldn't. Um, except for Carlos Machado. Carlos Machado spoke English. Henzo Gracie spoke English. And I don't think anyone else did. So Henzo's sitting next to me. We're on the wall. These guys start coming in the door. Fabio Gurgel and a lot, you know, some big names. And everyone's starting to go, oh, wow. Oh, look who's here. And I turned to Henzo and I said, is it some special day? Like, and he goes, oh, no, they... That's a top guy. He's this guy. Their fame's going. Go. I said, so why are they coming here today? What's the, what's the deal with that? And he said, oh, they've come to train with him. And he pointed to Hegan, who was sitting next to me. I've looked past Hegan and gone, with who? He goes, with Hegan. I've gone, with Hegan? Why would they want to train with Hegan? And he goes, he looked at me like I was insane. And he goes, don't you know where you are? And I go, what are you talking about? I just thought they were my mates on a mat. And I didn't realize that at that point, Hegan was like the, the best one in Brazil and all of that stuff. And so and I was a, I forget, I don't know, but I've been doing jiu-jitsu for a bit. So I didn't know. They were just my friends who happened to be you know, doing jiu-jitsu. I never thought, I didn't choose them because they were great. Because, you know, when you're a white belt, anyone's great. Anyone blue belt or higher, it's great. So what could I tell the difference between a the, the, that world champion and a blue belt? I probably couldn't tell the difference. I chose them because I was, they were just nice people. And we gelled, you know, so connected. But, yeah, that was – I didn't know who I was training with until years after it started. There's a lot to be now said about there's a, lot, there's, there's a lot to be said about social media and and kind of the 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 incorporation of the internet into into modern day society you know at the early 2000s late 90s like you know everybody's got access to everything now you've got all these tutorials that that people delve into you've got youtube videos you know bjj fanatics people pay through the arm and you know arm and leg to to get you know gordon ryan's latest latest uh latest video that's like probably i don't know 10 hours worth of tuition that you're never really going to practice in your own house you're going to watch it mm -hmm. and then try and incorporate that on the map maybe i don't know um i, I find it quite well, funny that's really. what 
that's what I think. I mean, people have asked me the question I've often been asked is, you know, what made jujitsu? Why is it taken off? And in my view, it's just because it started at exactly the same time the internet started. That that to me is the reason. If, if, if it, it could have that could have been taekwondo. Now it probably wouldn't have got as much traction, but I think it would have been. Yeah. So the the UFC happened at about the same time that the, the internet started happening. So it was just a beautiful timing. Yeah. Especially when you when when you look back and you look at the you know the guy that went into the UFC and took down all these massive guys in the ring, a, a guy that without you know being horrible about it, kind of looked like your dad. Your dad's yeah. in the ring with all these guys, and then all of a sudden he's taking them down, he's taking them back, and he's he's choking them out. He's not even striking; he doesn't want to strike because he's kind of yeah. making a point. And uh, and and when that comes out on VHS and everyone's going, oh, "Have you seen this?" Yeah, I can, yeah. I, I can see that, especially if you are into martial arts as well. And everyone's like, "Oh, how how do you do that?" And especially in this country as well, uh, jujitsu didn't really kind of take off until, you know, probably when you got your black belt, sort of, you know, ninety seven, ninety eight, early two thousands. Yeah. People started, were started the millennium is when it started to. Yeah, like, that's normal people would do it. Prior to that, there were people doing it, but they're all fighters. Like I think you, in the early days, the only people coming in were people that were fighters or thought they were fighters or thought they were hard. That, that's the only people. Normal humans weren't walking in. Accountants, engineers, people who work at Denny's, they weren't in. No way. You know, like it's, it was just fighters until yeah. about as you say, maybe 2000. What's your thoughts on, you know, BJJ self-defense versus competition versus, you know, recreation. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on that? You've summed it up. You did a good job. Like <laughs> I, I, I think they're kind of like almost three. That That's the streams, you know, like there's competition. It's one stream and there's self-defense, which is a, another stream. And there's, um, um just hobbyist recreational and that's let's call that lifestyle right um there's another right and they're all equally valid right and, and but they're all quite different um so where we get the problems is when your pamphlet try says it, it it's doing all three that's that's tricky um there's a lot of uh i think there's a fairly big disconnect between what a lot of people's pamphlet says and what they're actually doing. I mean, self-defense is different. Is the people punching you in the face? Are there two of them? Has one got a knife? Um, right. So. Okay. Um, it, you know, so, so a lot of jujitsu people are vulnerable in a self-defense situation because they, because of their effectiveness, <laughs> like, like they're, they're, they're so effective against one person that they automatically assume that they're good for self-defense. Whereas someone who is pathetically bad at Taekwondo or Aikido in terms of fighting might do better <laughs> because they're going to run away. <laughs> right. So, um, Sometimes I think jujitsu guys can get themselves confused. 
between self effective self-defense which you and i know if you've done any warfare you know um you know you don't want to pull the taliban guy in your guard and whack on a triangle you don't want to go deep half guard <laughs> so you've got to realize and not even ufc it like even mma it's like the same thing they're not we've run a lot of i've run a bunch of scenarios where you know you put this scenario on right and so someone and, and the, the the two or three commandos or, or um high level martial arts you know guys might take the guy down in the scenario and dominate him and mount him and then we just have a kid in the corner with the screwdriver and his job is just to wander up and just go in the back of the neck with the screwdriver and usually, weirdly enough, when you run that basic scenario, the, the tougher the martial artist, the more they, likely they're going to die because they're all overly focused on doing their skill on this guy, but they just don't see the kid. Whereas the the, the housewife would probably do better in that scenario, right? So I think sometimes hardcore, competent jujitsu guys can be fall victim to their own skill set when, when so anyway i'm going down a pathway there but um i think it's important to separate them out now having said that i think that um an academy wants to have a focus is it lifestyle is it competition or is it self-defense but dabble in the other two uh right so that, that i think you've got a responsibility to dabble in the other two right so pick one and make that your focus but dabble in the other two i think that's a a reasonable approach. I think you kind of tied three things all, all together. There really is, you know, the, the <laughs> self the self defense side of it. Um, you know, you, we we talked a little bit, touched on it briefly about, you know, the the military side of things with with um, with combatives and and all that sort of thing. And I, I try. This is one of the things that I became really frustrated with before I left. Because um, in the Marines, we've got a Royal Marines close combat system, um, which was is loosely based on the uh, map system that the USMC have. <clears throat> we have we have guys um, that go over to America and and, and do their um, map syllabus, and then they bring it over, and we just incorporated this syllabus all into into one program. Now that our, our recruits or the Royal Marine recruits um, <clears throat> take through. Uh, do through training. Uh, the the reason why I got kind of frustrated with it a little bit was because that in the Marines, because we've got the longest training that takes you through sort of like the infantry skills all the way into doing commando raids and teaching you how to operate in small groups. You know, near enough kind of SF level, but not that step up. Um, the guys were very much like, oh, you know were super hard kind of the classic cliche like you don't know when the red mist comes down i'll bang you out that kind of thing um and it kind of hit home a little bit when i was running a gym doing all the physical training programs and stuff for, for one of the commando units and um they transferred over to do like the maritime side of things so they're doing small man team onto boats clearing the ships out you know, combative, non-combative boardings and all that sort of thing. And they, they went into um, in, into a room and um, there was someone in there, you know, playing enemy and they went to do a four-man clearance of, of the room and it took four of them to take one person down. 
And a friend of mine that I was training with on the mats came and said, you know, ads, this, this shouldn't be happening. And I was like, that, that, mate, I feel you. The guys think they can do these amazing, brilliant things and, you know, they could take anybody down, but actually they don't really have any skill level at all. They do about 18, 18 hours worth of, worth of training when, when they go through recruit training. But then after that, there's no, there's no retention. They, you know, they don't train it at least once or, or twice a week, you know, for physical exercise, even just to, just to keep, just to keep on top of it. And that's all it would take. You know, they do fizz every single morning at about 8 30 when they when they turn to and they do fizz and they come back and they go on with their with their daily work it would only incorporate it into that and i was getting really frustrated with it and i was trying to say look the guys need to do this and at the end of the day if you don't teach somebody how to fight without a weapon then when they have a weapon and everything jams up and they've got to deal with somebody they might be on their own they might be with a team they might have to take people down and arrest and restrain them if they can't if they can't do that properly and efficiently they're not doing their job correctly. Yeah. And it was very much like it was because it wasn't something that they had to do to get a tick in the box to go away and deploy. Then it was just kind of, if someone was interested in jujitsu or grappling or something like that, then that's the only way that those lads would end up training and doing that. Now they used to ask me, you know, can you do a session? And I was like, yeah, I can but they need to keep coming back and doing it. Doing a takedown or scenario session for an hour every six months is, is, is not really going to cut it. And it, and it used to break me and we spend so much time um, trying to pers persuade people to, to learn how to fight when their job is actually fighting. Um, and it, it was just really frustrating that, you know, and when I left, I was just kind of like, do you know what? I'm just flogging the dead horse and I'm just going to leave it. That's one of the problems with large military organizations. And I've worked for, you know, quite a few of them and government organizations, which is slightly more gray. <laughs> there's black, there's gray, there's a green, there's all, they're all, and they're all quite different. Blue, the coppers, but they're, um, what was I going to say? Oh, they're, they're slow, the, the larger the organization, the less agile, the less agile, the, 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 the harder it becomes to change and switch up and adapt to teaching scenarios. How do you design scenarios? What's the best way, you know, in 20 hours or 40 hours or 200 hours to get these people to the highest level? Technology, all that technology is changing rapidly. And sometimes, you know, like I can be at some parts of it. I think I'm at the cutting edge of it, coming up with ways to do it that achieve an outstanding result. But large organizations, they, they are reluctant, right? Small agile groups can do it. They can have someone, they're autonomous. They can have someone in charge and go, shit, we need to do that right now. And we need to ditch what we've been doing now and do that. That's not most people. So they, you know, they come up with a syllabus. They write a, you know, a syllabus like the like Matt program, for example, and that I started helping out with that with Joe Colonel Joe Shushko when that first came out, designing. The, and um, once it's in place, it's really hard to change it. <laughs> I mean, you can build some some um, flexibility if you're smart in the design process you can build some flexibility in there that allows for you to adopt better practices and stuff but it's usually pretty difficult 
to change things. I mean, look at look at most of the mili large military organizations, and you, you, I'm sure you'll attest to the fact that, that, that some of them were still teaching the Fairburn Sykes kind of unarmed combat methods of how long ago? Like, oh my God, things have changed. Things are, things are changing. Like I've changed my mind on a lot of that stuff in the last two years, right? So, you know, they're slow to change. Um, they're, they're slow to adapt new practices and they're usually way, way behind the eight ball with the exception of a few grayish organizations, which uh, they need it because they're going to be deployed in weird capacities. And so they, they need to be really up for that. They'll do anything and spend any amount of money to, to get the right outcomes. But um, yeah, I mean, sometimes a bean counter, an accountant, this happened in Australia a while ago. I went up to Canberra and I was the main person involved in designing the 40 hour defensive tactics program, meaning unarmed uh, for the Australian army. And so um, it was, and uh, MSD, military self-defense, we called it military self-defense. And so I put a lot of thought and experience into designing 40 hours. So basically 40 lesson plans with some assessments all throughout there. And if we spent time, you know, six months making it all happen, we assembled a team of, I think it was eight or nine full-time MSD instructors who had to qualify and get in there and then become get across all the stuff from and then it ran for a couple of years and then one day an accountant said we're military we've got guns what are we spending money on that for because I, I guess it's like everywhere this person probably just got the job they wanted to prove that they can save money and they nixed it I mean what 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 would he know about like rocking up on a military a vehicle, you know, a vehicle checkpoint, um, and realizing you can't shoot every angry villager in the head, mate, <laughs> just because they want to go and see their cousin in the next village, and they're getting irate. You have to physically restrain that person. And by ninety nine point nine percent of the military, it's hands on, not not pulling triggers. They don't get that. He just made that stupid call. Oh, we 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 got guns. We don't need this stuff. And basically destroyed the program I'm like what so that used to frustrate me you know you put all this work in and then some third party bureaucrat kills it <laughs> it doesn't sound too unfamiliar from honest you know it happens it happens regularly um, and, and those are that that's the sort that's the sort of the 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 opinion and uh, and what happens when people change in jobs, right? You know, someone comes up with a new smart ideas club. Oh, <laughs> we don't, we don't need to do that. Oh, fucking, <laughs> fucking why not? What does that say on your arm? Yeah, it's like co commando. We're, we're, su we're supposed crazy. to, like, yeah, we're supposed to do this shit. Like, 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 what are you talking about? And then nine Here's times, about, like, yeah. consult the end user. Like, <laughs> radical nine concept. Yeah, nine times out of ten, like the the reason why they've shit canned it is because they also don't like it. Because let's be honest, fighting confrontation is really uncomfortable, and people don't generally like it. So, you know, if they don't like something, they don't do it. Right? If it's hard, they don't do it either. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but uh, yeah. 
let's change change the direction of the conversation a little bit. So um, you know, in yeah, your about something other people are interested in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, in your opinion, what makes a good academy or a good jiu-jitsu school? Um, well, I, again, it's, you know, there are different kinds, right? Is it lifestyle? Is it competition? Um, is it self-defense? So they're, they're, they're three quite different things. So if you've joined one school for one reason, but you're getting, you're not getting, you know, what you need for that, then it might be a great school, but it might not be a great school for you, um, right? So I think it's good for people to, they might have to try, you know, jump in, put their feet in the water for a bit and just get used to it, experience jujitsu in any form until they get square away in their head why they're actually, what they want. Because they might know, right? They might say, oh, I'm here for self-defense, but that's not really why they're there. They're there because they, they, they want to get fitter. They're there because they're not confident. They're there because they've got no friends and suddenly they've got friends. Yeah, it's a socialization. All awesome reasons, right? So I don't think it's hard to know. Like I've got enough experience to know that when you ask people at the beginning of their training why they're there, it's almost never the real reason. So it might take the average person a while to figure out what value they're getting from it. And then at that point, you might realize you're not in the right school. You're not getting the thing you're looking for. Um, so I guess that really come, that, that that would really come down to as well, like you know, your student retention as well, wouldn't it? You know how how that person has a rapport with you as a as a coach when 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 you're coaching, because you know, not everybody's going to get on with with each other, right? You know, some people have yeah, different personalities and they kind of clash a little bit. Um, people have different learning styles as well, you know, in the way that you teach, if you, if you've never done yeah. uh, a coaching course before and you can understand that people have different learning abilities and how to teach one way, but then they're not getting it. How do you turn that around? So they actually, you know, can learn that technique that, that you're, yeah. that you're teaching, you know, how, how they get it. If you can understand that, I guess that's how you retain that student as well. In my own school, I have, four different levels of classes for adults, right? So um, I have a beginners. So tonight's my beginner class. I will turn up there and there might be someone that's their first night. There might be someone that's been there for probably 10 weeks, right? So you've got to be in the beginners for three months. And then I've got novice class after that, white belt with a couple of stripes. Then I've got intermediate level after that. And then I've got advanced, you know, you've got purples, browns, and black dots in there. So I've got four different levels of classes. Now, to get back to my beginner class, twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday, I, I'm, I'm doing three things in my beginner class. One, I'm giving you some self-defense because you, you've said it to me when you walked in the door, you want to learn self-defense. And even if that's not why you're there, you've said it, so it's incumbent upon me to give you some self-defense. So shell, crashing in, clinching, fence, question, preemptive striking, a la Jeff Thompson. Um, so I'm, I'm teaching some self-defense in there. I'm also preparing you for my BJJ class. So for, there I've got four specific ground drills, positional drills, that are, is preparing you for when you come into the actual novice class so i'm self-defense 
I'm preparing you for my BJJ class. And the third thing, which is to, to my point to your, your question, is I'm teaching you how to learn. So I'm teaching you, actually training you how to learn to make you more receptive to my coaching style and how it's going to work. And so that's why in my beginner class, I take a three-pronged approach to so self-defense, prep for the BJJ class, and how you should be, how you can be a, 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 um, a fantastic adult learning machine. So it's, that's where my, three, my effort is going. Now, if you don't do that, and I, 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 I put to you that many schools do not do that, <laughs> um, then it's harder, right? So I think that, that, that's, that's really important. I think that comes down to as well, like how, how do you maintain that student as well? You know, how do you keep, how do you keep them training? We, we've all seen this, the, 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 uh, the, the saying or the, the, it's kind of, I guess, a, a classic cliche that once you get your blue belt, that's the easiest time to, to give up doing jujitsu as well. And uh, if you've got that environment where you can kind of keep on top of that and, you're giving them inspiration and they're, they're still learning and they don't kind of plateau or take a nosedive. That's kind of how you keep, keep them going, I guess, a little bit. I don't know. I, I don't really well, know the answer to that. There's a lot of things that come into play about retention, but one of them, it's like, there, there's a few things, but one of them would be like, if I go in the, in the army and I join the military there, I mean, there's a lot of levels. You're not going to throw me into Royal Commandos. You're not going to do it. You're going to go, whoa, bro, you need to start at infantry or, you know, or basic training or whatever you call it. So, and I think the Jiu-Jitsu schools do not do that. They go, you're in general population. So you've got some brown belt who doesn't give a shit about you. That's no, that's no way to keep students. In fact, that's Darwinian. And who's going to end up surviving that and staying is the guy who doesn't need it. So, um, the first thing people have to do is separate out. You've got to have a beginner specific class and they go, Oh, but it's no, I can't do that because I've only got three beginners. So I'll wait. What are you going to wait for? You're never going to get 10 or 20 because it'll never happen. You have to, you build it. They will come. You make that beginner class. There might only be one person in it. You give them the best private lesson of their life and you keep doing it. Next night, there's going to be his friend. Next night, next night, there's always 15 to 20 in my beginner class. You have to do it. Um, so that's one of the ways you can retain people by not throwing them in a raging torrent of a river when you're trying to teach them how to swim. We wouldn't do it with our kids, but they do it with people in jiu-jitsu. Idiots. That's number one. Um, curriculum, like what are you, what are you teaching them in what order? Like if you were teaching engineering ads and you're an engineering lecturer at university, so you get them all in there. Would you open that book at a random page and say, let's start here? No, you wouldn't do it in any other field. You would start at the front of the book because there will be a reason why they would know, want to know about that before they want to know about that. There's not enough of that going on. So if you give people a very progressive, logical, rational approach to learning things, they will tend to stay. If you don't, they're confused as all hell. 
So that's two. I can come up with a hundred, <laughs> but it's all of them put together that allows you to retain students. Because the average person, as you say, if they if they jump in there and had that Darwinian experience, because you put them in general population, so it's been let's say hellish for them, and then they've got through and somehow got to blue belt, and then in their mind they're going to go, I've got to do all of that again for purple belt, bro. I'm out. Of course they're out. <laughs> it shouldn't be. This should not come as a shock to anyone. But if it's been progressive and thought out. And a lot of things in jiu-jitsu are not thought out. They're just, and, and everyone is in the same class. And it is just taught in a random order. Like, oh my God. Like if I'm talking about, name anything in, in jiu-jitsu. There's a the crucifix, something similar. Passing the guard. The average jiu-jitsu school does not think about what should be the first guard pass. Because I, I could prove that to you because I could say, I could ask them that question. They'll have an answer and I'll say why. And they won't know why. <laughs> when you ask why they're doing it in that order, they go, I don't know. Well, maybe you should know. I know. Kind of, it's, I, it's kind of, yeah. This kind of brings me on to my, my, my kind of next point. You kind of leading. It's like you've got my notes that I've got written up here and you're going down them for pervatum at the moment. Um, you know, I did, I did a student in my class last night and uh, he was trying to, you know, I, I do something very similar to what you're talking about. So I, I I teach maybe two or three things from each position. So open guard, closed guard, side control, back control. And let's just keep going over and over and over and over those until I know that, you know, they're picking it up and they start doing it autonom autonomously. And then they'll start throwing a few more little technical details into, you know, to develop them. And he was trying to do this kind of um, guard pass where you've got the, you've got the uh, trouser grips and you step in with one leg and then you do like a really big back step. And I'm like, mate, you can't even do a Toriander pass yet. So there's no point in even, even thinking about that. And I think people are quite quite quick to rush to where the techniques, you know, I call it the the, the circle of doom, fad techniques that that have you know are popular. So you know, a few years ago was leg locks, you know, when Gordon Ryan and you know the um, the the Danaher Death Squad were were doing like leg locks. Leg locks became you know super popular. Everybody wanted to do it, and now it's kind of tethered off a little bit. You know, Gordon Ryan. You know, obviously the pinnacle of jujitsu at the moment, everybody knows his name. You know, he's not, he's kind of doing them, but then he's gone back to basics again. He's gone back to like pressure passing, you know, securing somebody, knee slice passes, leg pummeling, all these sort of things that kind of um, fundamental jujitsu. He's kind of going back to that and just showing how good it is. Like Roger Gracie, you listen to how Roger talks and he's like he doesn't know lots and lots of technical techniques he knows how to do the fundamentals well but do them in a way that people can't stop him from doing it they know what he's doing but they just can't stop him doing it and the, these i call them fad techniques people people trying these lots of different things and um I think if you if you're trying to teach lots of different things, like you're saying, 
it becomes super confusing for students as well. And they kind of don't know where they are when they actually start well, to spar. Yeah. I walk in tonight after my beginner class tonight at seven o'clock, I've got my advanced guys. I can be teaching Kani Basami entries into inside Ashigarami, inverting out, you know, backside 50, 50 helix. It doesn't matter because they've already, they've been training a couple of years before they got in there. So it doesn't matter. But the, one of the problems we talked earlier on about the internet being a boon for jujitsu in that, you know, it spread it, right? But there's a downside and that is prior to the internet, the only way you people would come up again with see a new technique was go, physically going to a competition. Oh, shit, Philippe beat everyone with this bloody thing. We better go home, workshop that, come up with counters and counters to counters and counters to counters. So it was a very slow I'm going to use a word, thorough, slow slash thorough, organic process. Now you've got the internet. So you can shortcut that and be distracted and pulled off mission because you're seeing someone do something before that you haven't seen. Someone's successful at something, they beat someone in a tournament, the spotlight's on them, and people go, oh my God, I should do that because I should do what the best guy's doing, right? No. <laughs> you should not because he got there via a pathway you've just you've been you've just been dropped off 20 meters from the top of everest by chopper he had to get a base camp he had to acclimatize he had to make his way up the mountain he had to learn teamwork he had to do all this shit you've been dropped off by helicopter you peanut <laughs> you are not qualified to be doing what that guy's doing unless you go through maybe a short, you know, a more accelerated version, but you've got to follow with the footsteps and you're looking straight at the end of the puzzle and you're looking at the solution without even understanding the problem. So that's a drama. And that's why people can get very distracted by, you know, um, what the current person, the Gordon Ryans of the world are doing. And uh, part of the job of a good instructor is to keep them tethered in, tethered to, the place they are now, right? And for a beginner, that might be just doing some walks at home. For a slightly more advanced, it might be doing some walks with a backpack. Slightly more advanced, it might be doing some walks in the Himalayas with a backpack. Slightly more advanced, it might be going to base camp and acclimatizing and doing some walks. You know, yeah, yeah, you're not ready to be climbing Everest yet. Just because there's a guide that can do it for you doesn't mean you should be doing it. Exactly. So, which leads me on to the instructor side of things. So, one of the one of the questions that I kind of I kind of play with in my head, and and I have a chat with every now and again with um with some of the guys that I train with is, uh, you know, should should your instructor should your instructor compete, you know, just to kind of put proof in the pudding. Um, now we talked about at the very start, you've got your different types of people. You've got your recreational people, you have your competitors and you have your people that are just doing it for self-defense reasons. But, you know, in your opinion, what, you know, what should your instructor do? You know, if you've got guys going to a competition, you know, should he be going to that competition too and, and, and putting proof in the pudding or, you know, what's your opinion on it? Okay. This is an easy question to answer. Let's just take it to any other field. 
Does every swimming coach have to compete in every swimming tournament? There's swimming coaches I know, world-class. They've never, they can't even swim. They're a fucking coach. That's what they're good at. And, and um, it, it's easy to look at the other side of it. What about the best competitors? I, I know a lot of world champions. Some of them are my friends. Can't teach their way out of a wet paper bag. So different skill set. You don't need one. Now, you know, not everyone needs to compete. They can, they can be experts at analyzing how the best competitors are competing and what they're doing and do their job beautifully well. So no, you don't need that. You know, that shouldn't be something that you need to do. It's, it's interesting you say that because, and and I I thoroughly, you know, I, I concur with it. And I'm, I'm going to use this as a person, uh, as, I'm going to use myself as sort of like the, uh, the, the the pinnacle of what we're kind of talking about is that I've competed when I was, you know, when I, when I started doing jiu-jitsu, white belt, blue belt, purple belt, I competed. You might find this a, you know, quite amusing, but from, from kind of my background, but I didn't really enjoy it. I, I didn't enjoy the competing side of it. I always, th I always felt there was too much internal pressure to perform because when, when it comes down to you, your coach as well, because I guess some people compete to show their coach that they're ready to get promoted. Maybe, I don't know. Um, uh, they they want to do well for for their team, but I I, I always found that the, there was a lot of internal stuff for me. Like I I, I just didn't I didn't enjoy like people wake up didn't enjoy like doing any of the weight cutting, and then when I got into actually doing the the physical competing, um, the way that I like to train and the way that I like to do things. <clears throat> it just didn't fit right with me. I didn't, I didn't find it defined who I was to compete. I didn't really know why I was doing it. I mean, I, I started doing jujitsu because when the waves were shit, I was sick of going to the gym and, and doing, you know, these programs. I was sick of doing the same thing over and over again. So I asked a couple of guys that were like mega into it and said, you know, should I start it? And every gym I went and worked in from then on, I, I set up a, a dojo and some matted areas and we, and we trained. That's how I started. You know, I, I was coach, I was coaching jujitsu since I was a blue belt because my job in the Marines was an instructor mm -hmm. as a coach. So I was innately good at it anyway, because I've been taught how to do that. Um, so from from a from a personal level, just because I I didn't enjoy competing doesn't mean that the people that I would I have been coaching and I coach now they don't find that an enjoyable experience. Which I'll go along to competitions and I'll you know I'll coach them from the from the sideline. So you you saying that is almost kind of like a um, a physical reinforcement, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean everyone's got different motivations, you know. Are you fighting for your country? You're fighting for the guy next to you. You're fighting for yourself. Are you, you know, I mean, people got different motivation, different things that keep them there. So you've got. I think it's. I think you need to provide a way forward for them, if you want to keep them. But it it, it shouldn't be like that's what we're all about. Listen, John, we, we've we've uh, we, we've been talking now for for over an hour, and uh, I, I super appreciate your time. So uh, I've got one more little question for you. Really, is what does what does John will do outside of jujitsu? What do you like doing outside of the uh, outside of the mat? 
my wife. Um, she, uh, I mean, me, <laughs> she's making funny, funny girl over there. My, I like the way, the way you said that was, uh, <laughs> was a little bit strange. That's okay. Leave it in. Um, <laughs> leave it in. Uh, I like my, one of the hobbies that I like to do is I like re uh, remote wilderness trekking, but I like fly fishing. So I combine those two things. Nice. So I like to go, you know, to some remote spots, maybe dropped off by chopper or something like that, like that remote, and then do a walk up a river system or through a range or whatever. And then I'm camping and fly fishing and all that. So I, that's, that would probably be, I've done a lot of that all over the world and here. Um, so that's probably my, the hobby I like the, the most that looks like it's very different to jujitsu, although I see a lot of similarities, but um yeah, that's 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 pretty fun for me. I'm doing one in three weeks' time, going away for a six-day hike and uh, backpack on and get to, into some place where there's no road for 20, 20, 20 miles. Um, and then, you know, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. England, fly fishing, where it all started. Well, Scotland, I guess. Yeah, fly fishing now, mate, it is too cold. <laughs> I think I might be showing my age a little bit. You know, I'm 42 this year and uh, I went surfing a couple of days ago. I, you know, kit these days pretty decent, but I I was, as soon as I paddled out, I was absolutely gibbering. I was like, oh, man, this is horrendous. And my fingers were, I had six mil gloves on as well. And I'm, I've literally, six only, mil. yeah, I've only just, I've only, I've only just got the feeling back in my fingers. Like, you know, I can't remember the last time I went surfing in board shorts. I only come to the UK in the summer. I come to Europe in the summer, every June I come over. So I only ever see it when it's nice. <laughs> You're missing out. Winter's the best time to come. I can't I'm not doing it. I'll be there in June. John, thank you very much for talking to me on the podcast, and I super appreciate your time. No worries. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Ads. It was, uh, it was fun. Cheers, John. Okay, cheers, mate. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. And also remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.